We're going to be actually uh, not in Luke today. We're starting our Advent series. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through chapter 9, verse 7. It's a long passage. I would encourage you to uh, turn there so that you can follow along. We'll end up reading through the whole passage, and then as we work through it, I'll make references throughout to kind of keep us kind of grounded in it. But uh, as you're kind of getting settled there, Isaiah 8, we're going to begin in verse 11. Uh, I just I wanted to uh, let you know what's going on. So we're, we're, um, we're starting our Advent series. We do this every year. It's kind of a tradition here that we don't, we, we don't celebrate Christmas in the sense of, oh, we're just going to do a Christmas celebration. It's been our tradition uh, that we, we celebrate Advent. Advent means arrival. It's remembering that Christ has come and looking forward to his, to, so he's arrived once, his first Advent, and then we look forward to his second or his coming again. So uh, that's what we do. And as, as I was preparing and getting ready and studying the text, and um, I came across an African proverb that goes like this. It says, no matter how long the night, the dawn will break. In other words, no matter how bad the circumstance, no matter how bad the trial that you're under, it's only temporary. Morning's going to come, relief, reprieve, you're going to feel the, the weight of that. And it dawned on me that as I was thinking about that, it, it dawned on me that that, it, that that that's true in our experience. Like we we get that right. I mean, we can af- we can appreciate what that's going for, but it's incomplete because it's it, it's true that our trial is temporary and that dawn is going to break and and the sun is going to rise. But but there's a reality that 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 same sun's going to set again and and night's going to fall, and and there's a cycle that we're in. And as I thought about that and, and realized that we are in a cycle of, of sometimes very difficult, very trying trials, sometimes devastating, even if temporary, sometimes devastating trials, we're, we're in this cycle in, in this life of, of difficulty to relief to difficulty to relief to difficulty to relief. And, and we're in that trial we're, or, or we're in that cycle. And, and it dawned on me, even as I was thinking about that, that, well, that's kind of what happens at Christmas, like, for, not for everybody. Some people, the holidays are very difficult. It's a, they're actually a trial in and of themselves. But by and large, the majority of people, they, they look forward with expectation, with anticipation to celebrate, celebrate Christmas. That It's a time of year that, that even, if, even if we don't say it out loud, that we put on a show, right? Like, if, even if we don't mean it deeply inside of our hearts, we, we put on a show of, of joy. And, and you see that in, in our television shows. You see it in our... Um, it, you know, just the news cycles and everything, you see this, this presentation of joy, happiness, and relief from the difficulties that we face in this life. But Christmas is going to come and go. The holidays are going to end. And all of those, you know, I mean, all the parties, the time off, extra time off work, time with family, if you like that kind of thing, um, so I don't know why I threw that in there. I should have probably said that out loud. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Let's start over. <laughs> you know, it's, it's time, time with the family, the, 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 the trappings of the holiday that we appreciate, after those end, and we go back to work, and we, holiday's over, all that was looming before is waiting for us on the other side. It's not, it's not gone. It's not, it's not past. It's, it's still there. And in fact, for many of us, for a lot of us, especially in our culture today, a lot of us have new trials and new difficulties to face because of the debt we incurred or because of, of how the time away or, or the, the pressures that Christmas brought with them have, have added to the pressures of life the following year. 
We're in this cycle. And we dress it up with a holiday, but then we go back to the real world, and it's all over. And in part, that's why I appreciate that we celebrate Advent. Because there's a reality that as we come, Christmas, if you think about it, is, is a holiday that, that, man, it's just a temporary thing. It's just, we, we look back, we celebrate the birth of Christ. And we, you know, okay, well, next year we'll celebrate the birth of Christ again. It's like a, any other birthday. But the thing I appreciate about Advent is that as we celebrate Advent, we're looking back on his first arrival when the light of Christ began to shine and looking toward a day where the light of Christ will never dim again. It will be eternal. We'll stand in his presence, never to be separated, never to be distant, never to be, never, never to be walking in the midst of shadow ever again. The cycle of dawn to night falling to dawn breaking to night falling to dawn breaking to night falling will end because the light of Christ will shine forever. You see, so as we talk today, I, I just want to remind you that and from the scripture really lets you see that our celebration here, our, our focus on Advent, it's not just about a holiday. It's about learning every day to live in the light of Christ, celebrating every day that the light has shone and celebrating every day that the light will shine for eternity. See, the, the reality is, is this celebration isn't just about preparing us in some trite way to celebrate Jesus. I, I celebrate Jesus' birthday every day of the year. I, you know, it's, it's like people that say, I celebrate, uh, I, they want to cop out on, on Valentine's Day or something. I love my wife every day of the year. I don't need to buy her roses on Thanksgiving, or on, well, I guess you could buy her on Thanksgiving. Valentine's Day. Gosh, man, need to start over. Where is this coming from? Well, that's the reality. We're not talking about this in some trite way. I'm talking about this with the full promise of Christ, that his light has begun to shine, and there will come a day that his light will shine so brightly that there will be no shadow, that there will be no darkness, there will only be no desperation and gloom. And that's exactly what God was calling his people to do, to look toward, to expect, as he gave his words to Isaiah, his prophet. So let's begin reading. Verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, now let me just stop there and let me set the tone. I, I want you to see this is a strong word. This is a strong warning. Isaiah is sensing this impression, hearing this word. I, I don't exactly know how it came to him, but he recognizes that God is insisting upon his listening. His strong hand upon me. And it's a strong warning. This is not, this is not some, some word that's coming that's just to be, oh, make you feel good. We all need those encouraging words. But this is a warning. This is a guard against something. And he says, his strong hand upon me and warn me, what? Not to walk in the way of his people, saying... Or not to walk in the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that the people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what, the, what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and many shall humble uh, or shall stumble on it they shall fall and be broken they shall be snared and be taken 
Bind up this testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. You hear Isaiah's words in response. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents of, in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, now he's speaking to those that would listen to him. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. If they won't speak according to this word, it's because they have no light. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Do not miss the weight of these words. They are heavy. They are strong. They are direct. And they are speaking to a reality of a people who exist in the depths of darkness. But, he goes on, verse chapter 9, verse 1, but, you hear the contrast, right? There's going to be a change here. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he had made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone you, he says, now speaking to God, you have multiplied prophesying from God, about God, to God. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every brute boot of the trampling Warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with the justice and with the righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As by this point in Israel's history, they had long been divided into two Kingdoms, a northern kingdom, Israel, a southern kingdom, Judah. And they were under the threat. Judah, uh, this is where Isaiah is, and this is where he's prophesying at. And the words previous to this passage were, were spoken to, uh, to King Ahaz, the, the king who sat in Judah on the throne of Judah, their, their king at this time. And Isaiah is prophesying in Judah about what's to come and, and what they're going to face. 
And part of, what, part, part of what they're already seeing, what they're already experiencing is the fact that they're under a threat of war. The northern kingdom of Israel, the king had, had, had conspired with the nation of Syria and they were going to go to war against the southern kingdom. Israel's own people, the, 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 the God's people, his covenant people warring and battling together against one another. All in an effort to unseat Ahaz from his throne so that they could place their own king there. And Ahaz ends up re- reaching out to Assyria, kind of making a deal with the devil on his own. Turns out it's a bad choice for them, and, and they suffer the consequences for it. But, but here's the reality is Ahaz was never, never thought of, never seen, never, never, he's never been remembered as a wise or good king. In fact, the record would show that he was a wicked king. You can read about him back in the, in the books of the kings and the chronicles. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28, you can see that he's remembered as a king who lived after the way of Israel. What that means is that he followed the example of the kings of Israel who had rejected God, who had gone their own way, who led the nation toward idolatry and, and against the commands of God in, in, in rejection of his covenant. And Ahaz, a king of Judah, follows their example. In fact, he's remembered in 2 Chronicles 28, he's remembered as making images to the, to the deity or to the to Canaanite deity Baal. He would, he would create these images and, and the nation would follow after him and they would worship Baal, a god who had been displaced, a, a false god who had been displaced as, as God brought the Israelites into the holy and promised land. He, he had said he was going to drive out the peoples and drive out the, the false gods and, and, and set up his people in this place for his own glory. And yet here's Ahaz turning back to the worship of idols. And it's not just Baal that he worshipped. And just outside the city gate in the valley of Hinnom, he set up a, an altar and a, and a place of worship to the god Molech. He was, an, he, he was a, a deity of the Amorites. And, and the way that they would worship him was to, to sacrifice their sons on the altars in fire. To burn them to death in honor of a false god. This is, the, this is the legacy that Ahaz had. This is, this is the, the, the reality of Ahaz's existence. This is what he was leading this nation into. And so you can, see, you can see why Isaiah is hearing these words and he is being warned by God not to walk in the way of this people. The strong warning, don't do what they do. And I tell you this, there's a couple of reasons. I, I think it's important for us to realize that first, Isaiah is not speaking He's not speaking a word that's going to be readily received. He's not speaking to a people who are, are going to want to listen. He's, he's speaking in a time that I think it's safe to say that this is not the good old days or the golden era of Israel's existence. But second, I, w- I want you to see that the point in which Isaiah is writing, the, the time and place and people that he's writing among, holds a very surprising similarities to the day and time and place that we live. Really shocking when you slow down and think about it. But we live in a day and a time that by and large has rejected any notion of the God who has revealed himself in the scripture. Oh, come on. We may may invoke his name when we call out for blessings on our nation. Well, God bless these United States. Yeah. 
We speak of, we, 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 we honor him by, by fighting to make sure that we're one nation under God in our Pledge of Allegiance because, you know, it's heresy to get rid of that because, well, we like to act like it. We may, we may be able to read the words, in God we trust on, on every dollar we spend. But we live, in a, we live in a place and among a people who do not know God, who do not honor God as God. No, we may not be building statues to bow down in front of them uh, like they did with Baal. We, we may not be building statues with, with the heads of bulls on them that we might bow down and, and offer sacrifices before them. But we are no less guilty than the than the people of Israel, than the people of Judah. Of determining that we were going to worship the created instead of our creator. Just think about what we devote ourselves to. Just think about how we spend our time, our energy, and our talents in pursuit of things that would dishonor God. How we laugh and crack jokes about things that grieve him. And we may not be burning our children up on altars to false gods, but we live in a land in which daily we're sacrificing our children by the act of abortion to the gods of convenience and independence. It's not just abortion but abandonment and absenteeism because they're a burden we don't necessarily want to deal with. Just weren't planning for them. And so our children are suffering. And I didn't share this with the first service. It dawned on me in the middle of that message that we don't, we don't just sacrifice them to gods of convenience and, and independence. If, if we're not sacrificing them, we often are running to the other end of the spectrum and we are idolizing them and seeking our identity through them and making them the end and purpose of our existence, making them, putting them on some pedestal in which we are going to destroy them because we are going to give them, we are going to give our lives to them in such a way that rather than lead them as parents, we're going to give ourselves to them and make them, so, make them believe that they're something they are not. We live in a land, in a place, and among a people that's guilty. In addition to the ongoing idolatries that we, we face and even participate in, we exist in a time of rumors and threats of war. It's hard to, it's hard to turn on the news, hard to open up uh, a, a, a news website or a social media feed and not see talks of what's going on in North Korea, not to, not to hear about the, the, the narcissism and the, and the craziness between uh, leader, our, our leaders here in America and, and leaders in North Korea and the narcissistic battle that's going on between them that's going to affect the, the nations that they lead. It's, it's, hard to even not, it, it's hard to disconnect from that. 
And we can blame it on their narcissism. We can blame it on the narcissism of, of Kim Jong-un or, or the narcissism of Donald Trump. But, but the reality is we were facing threats of war and threats before Trump took up residence in, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We, we, were, we were facing threats before uh, Kim Jong-un or however you say his name. But before he shot his first ICBM, there were threats. The reality is if we stop and think, this generation, this generation has never known peace. I joined the army in 1990. And I joined when Desert Shield was becoming Desert Storm. It was one of our first, first conflicts in the Middle East. And we, were, we were fighting against Saddam Hussein and I didn't join to go to war, but by, by the time they were finished with me, I was ready to go to war. I was like, yeah, let's go. But again, it dawned on me from that time, every soldier that served, you know, the war didn't last long, right? Like it was over a few, just a few days. Like it, they were done. It was fast. But every soldier that served still received a ribbon that demonstrated they served in a time of conflict. Because even though we weren't officially at war, there was still a major conflict they were facing. And there were deployments that they would, that they would endure. And the reality is, is that still, still looms over us today. And it didn't take Trump, and it didn't take Kim Jong-un to make that happen. The reality is, if you dig below the surface, you've never lived in America that's known a real and true peace. Oh, we might have an image of it. We might be able to make ourselves feel good about it. But it's a sham. And it's a lie. And the cycles of dawn breaking and, 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 and night falling have continued to run regardless of who's set in the positions of leadership. It's this kind of environment this, this kind of unrest, this kind of pressure that Isaiah receives this revelation from God in which God warns Isaiah strongly, do not do what this people does. Do not live like they do. Beware of them. Be warned against them. Do not follow their example. You and my people are to live in a countercultural way. You, you, by your very commitment to me, by your very um, um, following and trusting after me, are to, to swim against the stream of cultural influence. You are to be living distinct lives. And distinct in two ways, both in how they lived and in how they would experience God. And that's what is broken out in these next two warnings, or the, the, this prophecy. Distinction among this people, distinction of God's people among these people, both in how they live and how they experience God. We see the first one in, in chapter 8, verses 12 through 15. Do not call conspiracy all that people calls conspiracy, all that this people calls conspiracy. I mean, we could learn something from that. Jumping on every bandwagon, jumping on everything that people disagree about, jumping on everything that's got something to say that says there's something's wrong in the world. Absolutely, there's something wrong in the world. We have rejected the God who created us. Why are we surprised that there's no rest and no peace? 
Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Again, we could learn something from that. Fear God. Dread him. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. In the depths of darkness in which they existed, and in the depths of darkness in which we exist, we can fear God first and find sanctuary in Him, or not fear God and be snared by Him. The world fears everything but God. God's people, on the other hand, have nothing to fear, no need to fear everything, because they fear him first, they fear him most. And so the question, though, is, is well, well, wait a minute. Well, what is it to fear God? Like, he's a God of love and mercy, and, and he doesn't hurt. You know, he's, he's a good guy. He's going to be there when I need him. What's there to fear? What does it mean, then, to fear God? We, we, we are not taught what it is to fear God. We, 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 we have grown up in a, in a world that, that, that rejects the idea of fearing God. So what does it mean? Well, I think we see kind of what it means in the text. To honor him as holy. To treat him as exactly who he says he is. I mean, just think about some of the words and some of the names and some of the descriptions of him in the scriptures. The one that comes to mind first and foremost is from just a few weeks ago in Luke, in our study of Luke, when it said that he is a consuming fire. That's a, that's a picture of God that the world would reject. A consuming fire. Ray Ortland, in his commentary on this passage, would explain it this way. He says to fear God is to dare to treat God as God. Not some smaller, lesser, powerless being. Not some smaller, lesser, created thing. But to see God as God. To treat God as God. Don't respond, he says, to life in a way that makes God look helpless and weak and worthless. Living emotionally as if God were not really our Savior is practical atheism. Yeah, we invoke God's name in a nation that knows nothing of him. That are practically atheists because they've created a God in their image that bows to their demands. But does not demand us to bow to him. God says, fear me. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And look what happens. He becomes a sanctuary, a place of safety, a place of, of, of holiness, a place of protection. And when we fear God, that's where we find the protection and the safety that we long for in every, from everything else. That's why we have no reason to fear him. Or, or, I'm sorry, that's why we have no reason to fear anything else or, or, or to fear everything else. 
because he becomes our sanctuary. But the alternative is to live in, a, in, in fear of every conspiracy. To live in fear of everything that people have to say is wrong in the world that's destroying us. Flip, flip, flip on the news and just listen to some of the things that they have to say. That all the things that are destroying us. We're a horrible, awful people. Because look at how men have treated women. Please understand, I am not making light of that. But that's an indication of the reality of the horrible, awful people we already were. We're a horrible, awful people. And our nation is being destroyed because, because we're racist at our core. We always have been. It's nothing new. And the fix that the world would have for it is only a band-aid on top of a gushing wound. But to live in fear of those things rather than as a person who has light that gives answer to those things. We don't have to be that. The alternative, though, is to live in that fear of every conspiracy. The alternative is to live in fear of everything that we cannot overcome. And if we're honest with ourselves for just a moment, what can we overcome? What do you have the power to beat? To be a victor over? Not much, because we're enslaved to sin apart from the power of Christ. To live, the alternative is to live in fear of everything we cannot control. I mean, what can we truly control? Nothing. I used to think that I had a measure of self-control. <laughs> and it is a fruit of the Spirit, but it's, it escapes us. And, and this became a, a reality to me just a few months ago. I, th I think I shared with this, ser this service as well. I think I shared with the church that a few months back I dealt with anxiety. I never dealt with anxiety before. I didn't even really know what I was dealing with in the midst of it. It was after talking about it to people. They're like, oh, that sounds like anxiety. And so, you know, you get on WebMD and you start figuring out what's wrong with you. And that's what I did. So, so I, I think that's, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And the whole time I'm feeling anxious and, and the, the, this pressure in my chest and this sense of doom in the days to come and this difficulty breathing and this sense that everything is falling apart. The whole time that's going on, I'm telling myself, you are loved. The cross proves that he has cared for you, that he has provided for you, that you cannot be defeated, that you will not be undone. And no matter how many times I said that, and no matter how much intellectually I understood that, and no, much, no matter how much I was feeling and sensing the truth that I believed it, <laughs> that pressure didn't relieve. That, that sense of doom, it didn't disappear. Well, I thought I could control myself. If, 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 of everything out in the world that I can't control because there's too many, too many variables to, to control because I'm not powerful enough to control them. I thought I can control myself the way I think, the way I feel, the way I act. I can control myself. No. 
we won't fear God, what do we have to fear? Everything else. If we do fear God, we find him as a sanctuary and we need to fear nothing else. But if we won't fear God, we might as well fear everything else. And the reality is this, the the irony of not fearing God, rejecting him as holy and righteous and having great great authority and sovereign authority over us. The, the, The irony of all of that is that eventually we learn the hard way that there is no escaping him. You will learn the hard way that you will have to fear him. He will become a a stumbling stone in which you're constantly tripping over. He is always there and you're tripping over him because you can't rid your life from him. He's ever present. And we will always stumble over him until we are finally crushed by the rock of his existence. He will not simply let us go off into an existence without him. But instead he becomes a snare and a trap. There is no escape. And the interesting thing about this is that he doesn't change. He's not the thing that changes in this whole passage, in this whole whole process. He is not the thing that changes. But it's how we approach him, whether we fear him and find sanctuary in him, or whether we reject him and reject fear of him, fearing everything else, and find ourselves caught in his trap snared with no opportunity for escape. See, the irony is is that those who would fear him now will find him a sanctuary of peace and comfort and safety. But those who will reject him in the final analysis, they will find him most fearful of all. So there's a distinction. We fear God and find sanctuary where we follow the process, the path of the world around us, and we reject God and fear of God and find him as a snare. He goes on in verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. And so we begin to see kind of Isaiah responding here. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are the signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not people inquire of God? Should they inquire of the dead? I mean, just consider the Ill, how illogical, how silly this sounds. In the light of the truth, how silly it sounds. You need to know something about life? Go ask the dead. That's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Shouldn't we seek out the God who created us? Shouldn't we seek to know him? Shouldn't we seek to hear from him? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light. They are not illuminated. They are not as wise as they sound. They are not as smart as their credentials would imply. He goes on, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. (laughs) They're going to get angry at God because he doesn't bow to them and they're going to get angrier at God. And they will look to the earth but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. 
in the depths of darkness that they existed, in the depths of darkness that these people were, in the depths of darkness that we now exist, we can trust in God's word and find in it light to lead us where we can reject God's word and seek wisdom and truth from some other source and find only more darkness. Increasing darkness, darkness that builds upon darkness and only seems to get darker. And the call of these verses, the call in these verses is to preserve the wisdom that's been given by God. To bind it up, to preserve it, to protect it, to ensure that it continues to be able to shine. So that the people can hear it. And so that those that come after can hear it. Because in it there is light for life. This is the, the psalmist as he wrote Psalm 119. This is the, the testimony that he gave as he spoke over and over about his love for God's word, his love for God's law, his, his meditation on it day and night. He comes to this place, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is like the beam of a flashlight cutting into the darkness of night. You can see it. It illuminates the way ahead. It illuminates where you're about to step. It illuminates so that you can stand. It illuminates so that you can walk the path. It gives, you, it gives you truth to live by. It gives you wisdom to lean into. It gives you light for your life. In the preface of his Greek New Testament, Erasmus wrote these words, On these pages you will find the living Christ and you will see him more fully and more clearly than if he stood before you, before your very eyes. He understood this. He saw Christ. He saw Christ being depicted on the pages of the New Testament. And, and here's the reality. Because the, the writers of the, of the scriptures, because people like Isaiah bound up these words and preserved them for us, you and I are at no disadvantage. As we live here in the depths of darkness, we are at no disadvantage because we can't see Christ in the flesh. Because, oh, if we could just see Jesus, if I could have just heard him preach, if I could have just heard him, seen him work a miracle, if I could have just walked behind him in the dust of his path, and then I would be able to trust him more. Then I would be able to follow him more. See, if, if God had had me born then, if God hadn't made that mistake and had me born now, like I'd really be sold out. We are at no disadvantage because the light of his word reveals his truth so that we can live. Because writers like Isaiah bounded up and preserved it, not just for himself and his people in his day, but for you and for me. Just listen to it again. He, he says it. He, is, he, he says in verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts. Their lives affected by the illumination that comes from God's word, from God's revelation, they become light that point people to Christ. Because of them and their testimony, we're here 2,700 years later studying a word that's still as relevant because we exist in the same depths of darkness that they always have. We're able to know it because Isaiah heeded the warning and Isaiah bound up the testimony and sealed the teaching so that God's disciples, so that his students and followers would know it. The alternative 
The alternative is to look to the dead to give us answers of life. Calling on a psychic to find out if you should date that guy or marry that girl. Asking a Ouija board some question about your life. And I know it seems like those things are silly and trite. When I was in high school, I, got, I was with a group of friends. I was not a believer. <clears throat> we made a homemade Ouija board out of cardboard. Wrote the letters. Even made, I mean, drew it from a picture. And it wasn't all fancy. I mean, it was a pretty rough drawing. Wrote everything out, yes or no. Got a, got a little uh, small jelly jar. And turned it upside down. And began to ask questions. And we all assumed it was this one girl that was, it was, it was her idea. We all assumed it was her that was moving it around. You know, you're like, you're, oh, that's not real. That's not, not true. She took her hand off and we asked questions and it still moved. And we're like, oh, no, it's you doing it. It's not me, it's you. You know, there's four or five of us doing it. And so then we began to ask questions without asking them out loud. And I don't know, if my, my middle name is Ephraim. I really appreciate my mom and dad giving me that. I'm just kidding. I, I, I get why they did. But it, wor- it worked out because I thought, nobody will know. Like, isn't, nobody is going to know my middle name. So I thought in my head, what's my middle name? And when it spelled out my, my name, whew, there's power. And it's dark and it's deadly. And we live in a world that would prefer to turn to it to find out the answers to life than to the God who created life. I mean, the alternative is to look to the dead to give us answers of life, to turn to people who, who have no life in them to tell us how we should be living. The alternative is to look to the earth. Oh, well, if you can't find your answers out there, look at the earth. Mother Earth, she'll take care of you. She'll reveal what you need to know. But he's clear. They look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. Their darkness only got darker. The alternative is to recognize the need, the hunger, the distress of the gloom. See, the reality is that this alternative is, is to recognize that we live in a cycle of, of dawns breaking and nights falling and dawns breaking and nights falling and dawns breaking and nights falling and have no answer that provides any real hope. How powerless we feel, how powerless we are when we realize that that is all this world can offer is the reality of the darkness that they live in and finding out that they have no hope to escape it. The sad and ironic truth is is that no matter how hard they look for light to come out of the darkness, they only find more darkness because everything we try apart from God fails. It falls apart. Everywhere we look apart from God and his truth all comes to the same thing, darkness. The impact is not just for us, it's for others. 
As much as, as Isaiah was, and, 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 the, and the children given to him were signs for Jerusalem, we are signs for a sin-sick world, a dark city, this filled with religion and the opposite of, are, are filled with religion and irreligion. We live in a city that depends on legalistic being good enough religion. And we live in a city where, where irreligion is pressing back. What are we going to point them to? Are we going to be a light that shines in that darkness? Or are we going to be like them who say, go, go and talk to the necromancers and the mediums. Look to the earth. Your answers are in the earth. Where are we going to point the next generations? Can we be? Will we be a people who lean into the light and reflect the light that people can see the light? It's dark. It seems difficult. How in the world are we going to hang on? How are we going to endure in the midst of this? How are we going to last as a people who are called to swim up against the stream of our culture? Swim upstream against, against our culture. How are we going to be a people who continue to shine this light? We see as the, as the prophecy, as, as, as Isaiah's word, as God's word through Isaiah continues to unfold. But, nevertheless, he says, this is a reality of the depths of darkness, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time brought into contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, a light has shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They rejoice. We just sang the song, Emmanuel, God with us, you know. Rejoice, rejoice because Emmanuel, rejoice. This is what Isaiah is getting at is that there is a light coming, that there is a light going to shine. And we find at the end of this that, that, that it is, this light is Christ. The Christ to come, the promise of God to be with them. The, the promise of God to come and shine his light into the depths of darkness. Not because of what people did. Not because they accomplished something, but because it was his zeal to do so. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, it says at the end of verse 7. This is God's work. And so he tells us, Isaiah tells us, in the former time, when, they were, when, they were, uh, when Naphtali and Zebulun were, were under contempt from the Lord, there was a reality, they were the northernmost regions in Israel. They were the northernmost tribes in Israel. And anytime there, there was an attack from anyone, they, they came down, they came across Zebulun and Naphtali, and, and, and they had been run over, over and over and over again in their history. But it's in that place that later becomes the region of Galilee. It's in that place that our Christ was raised. And it's in that place that Christ, much of his ministry, was worked. They, the ones in darkness, saw a great light. They saw him working his miracles. They watched him walking. They heard his words being spoken. On them light did shine. And he says, you have multiplied the nation. You have grown it, God. You have increased its joy. You have given us reason to rejoice. 
And how can it be? What's he going to do? What's he going to accomplish that gives us reason to rejoice? Three things. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, have, you have broken in the day of Midian. The light of Christ shines in the darkness, freeing God's people from oppression. He ends oppression. He calls it out as in the days of Midian. He breaks the oppression. He, he, he removes oppressors. As in the days of Midian, well, that doesn't make much sense to you and me because we're like, I didn't, I don't, what's Midian? You got to go all the way back to the judges and the story of Gideon. Gideon, I, I like Gideon, one, one, of, one of my favorite judges, maybe because I didn't learn about him in Sunday school, but, but he was, the, he was um, and I found out about him as I was reading the Bible myself, but he was the weakest man from the weakest tribe of all of Israel, and he just didn't see how in the world God could use him. And, and God's like, no, I'm using you. Come on, you're, you're going you're gonna to lead your people. You're going to take them out of oppression. I'm going to use you for my name and for my glory. And Gideon's like, okay. And so he assembles an army. He's got an army of 32,000 people. And he's like, going to go to war against Midian. And God's like, no, you got too many people. I got too many people. Like, I'm, I mean, I'd be asking questions. Uh, too many people. Like, I, maybe I need some more. 32,000 people. You need to send some home, God says. He sends some home and, and he works his way down. And God says, no, still not enough. Finally works his way down. He's got 300 people. And God says, okay, let's go. And by the way, you know your battle plan to go head to head and go fight the Midianites? I, scrap it. I got another battle plan for you. You're not even going to lift a sword. I'm going to fight for you. So the battle plan is take your trumpets, surround the camp of the Midianite army, and when, I, when, when the time is right, you blow those trumpets. What? Like that's how we're going to go to war with these people? We're going to tell them we're there so that they can run over us? So they do it. They separate into three groups of 100, and they surround the Midian camp. And when the time is right, they blow their, they blow their trumpets. And without lifting a sword, without lifting a hand, they defeated the Midianite army because God fought for them. Such a fear. You can go back and read it yourself. Such a fear came on the Midianite army that they, that they were driven to fight each other. And they raised their swords against each other. And they destroyed themselves. Because God fought on behalf of Gideon's 300-man army. The light of Christ shines in the darkness, freeing God's people from oppression. This is God's work. He is our victor. He is the one that fights on our behalf. He is the one that frees us from oppression. He is the one that gives us some sense of victory. We are not victors. We can't overcome in our own power. We can't control anything in our own power. We have everything to fear. Except when we fear Christ. He fights on our behalf. He provides for us sanctuary. And he frees us from the oppression that comes from sin our own and the sin of others. The next thing he says is in verse five, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Jesus, the light of Christ shines in the darkness, putting an end to war to establish peace. Jesus isn't just ending oppression. He's ending the wars that lead to oppression. And we see that. He's, he's saying the boots that warriors would have worn into battle, they're being burned up. The, the garments rolled in blood. 
Like Jesus isn't just ending war. He's getting rid of all of the machinations, all of the, all of the articles of war. He's ridding the world of them. He is throwing them in the fire and they will be burned up. There will be no war. There will be peace. Because Christ the victor, his light has shone. And finally in verse 6 and 7, we see that the light of Christ shines in the darkness to establish his kingdom forever. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor. It's his words that are good and true. It's his words that offer us right and wise advice. It's his words that we should be listening to. He is mighty God. Many commentators would, would seek to dismiss this as an as a indication of this prophecy demonstrating Jesus' divinity. But just a few passages later, Isaiah is going to use the same phrase as, as part of this prophecy, referring not to Jesus, the son to be born, but to God, the God of heaven, right? So, so we see that he is the divine God. He is the mighty God, the God that has all power to accomplish all that he says he will accomplish, he is the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And kings would, would consider them fathers of their people, providers for, caretakers of, protectors of their, their people. He is a father. He is a king whose, whose kingdom will never end. He will always rule. He will always have supreme authority. He will always be our protector, our provider. In him we will find sanctuary, prince of peace, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that will, uh, where, where there will be no gloom, no anguish, no difficulty, all the trials, the, 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 the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun, the, the, the breaking of dawn and the falling of night, the, the cycle of distress and turmoil, giving some temporary reprieve will be ended. There will be a day where peace will reign. We will live forever and ever in the light of day. Why do we celebrate Advent? Why do we look toward a a Christ who has come with the anticipation of his return because we each long for this. A day when the cycle of distress and relief is ended and we stand in his light, the light of peace forever and ever and ever. You see, in the depths of darkness in which they exist and in which we exist, God's people can walk in the light of his promise with full confidence that the, life, the light of Christ will break the dawn after a long night. His light will shine and it will grow and to it there will be no end. But the alternative, the alternative to this light or the alternative, I'm sorry, is to see this light and to do everything we can to close our eyes to it. To see this light, to stand as, and let this light hit us, but love the darkness more, as John said in his, his gospel. They saw the light, but they loved the darkness. The alternative is to stand in this light And receive no benefit from having seen it or having it shown on you. See, the alternative is to depend on quaint little sayings like, no matter how long the night, the dawn will break. 
And the sad and ironic truth about that is that one day that dawn's not going to come for any who would reject it. So may we not be a people that reject the light, but find our hope, find our peace, find our sanctuary in the light, the light of Christ who's come showing us a God that should be feared, that offers sanctuary to all who fear him. And find light in the revelation of God in his word, both the living word and his written word, because it's a light that gives us light to live by. Let us pray. Father God, you are gracious and good. We are blessed, probably blessed more than we even realize, just to be quite honest. Help us know it, Father. Help us see it and experience it to to realize it more fully. Father, would, would you work among us? Shine your light on our lives. Jesus, would you illuminate the truth of where we stand, the truth of what we experience? But in this season of Advent, would you remind us that that this cycle of difficulty, this cycle of trial that gives way to relief, that gives way to trial, that gives way to release, remind us that there's a day coming that the trial ends and glory begins. Help us to endure to that day, not living as the people around us live, but but walking every day in, in, in your light. For any of us that would be putting on a show, representing some false narrative about who we are or what we believe or how we live, Father, I pray that you open our eyes to the truth, that apart from you there is only darkness growing and darkening, increasing darkness. May we fear you more than we fear it that we might find sanctuary. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.